0: Welcome back to the Bill Bennett podcast. I'm Claude Jennings. And today we've got some very special audio uh, to play back for you. At least I think it's very special. So Bill uh, had a special project to do. I can't talk about what the project uh, is right now, but we did a special project and not everything we recorded is used for for the project. But everything that Bill recorded is good, really good content. Uh, you know, he had his secretary of education hat on. He had his professor hat on uh talking about education, specifically American history and civics and how it's taught. Uh He gave some really, really deep thoughts on American history, uh, on the country, on civics and how to teach it, how to talk about the country and the country's history. And this part of the recording, they're not going to use in this project. And so, you know, we're going to air it on the podcast because it's really, really, really good content. Uh, You know, usually Bill doesn't. Go long form on the podcast. Uh, he likes to, you know, get uh, some smart folks on like Byron York, like Joe Farkas, Brian Kennedy, Gordon Chang, Seth Lipson, uh to talk about things that are going on, Mark Krikorian. Um, and so he doesn't go, you know, 25 minutes or so talking about, uh, you know, just what's on his mind and what, what he thinks. But this uh, recording here, we got an opportunity just to hit record and let him go. And I think you'll enjoy that. So we're going to get to that uh, conversation coming up uh, momentarily. But first, I want to let you know about our friends at Bank On Yourself. Have you been dreading looking at your 401k or your IRA account balance? Yeah, things aren't looking really good right now. And you're not alone. And the experts say there has been no place to hide. But that is simply not true. The truth is you can build a financial bunker that grows and protects your money during even the scariest economic times. The bank on yourself retirement plan alternative lets you escape the financial carnage that has never had a losing year in over one hundred and sixty years. Whether you have been investing for years or just started out, now is the time to bypass Wall Street and bank on yourself. Bank on Yourself lets you reach your financial goals and dreams without taking any unnecessary risks. You get guaranteed predictable growth and retirement income with no luck, skill, or guesswork needed. This strategy also lets you take a tax-free retirement income, which protects you from the coming tax tsunami. Unlike the government-controlled 401k, IRA, or similar plan, you control the money in your plan, not the government. You can use your money for any purpose with no questions asked without interrupting the growth of your savings. This is the strategy famous businesses like McDonald's have used when no banker would lend them a dime and almost anyone can do it. No volatility. Your plan doesn't go backward when the markets tumble. Both your principal and growth are protected. Peace of mind. Perhaps the best reason of all You'll know the minimum guaranteed value of your plan on the day you plan to tap into it, and at every point along the way. You can get a free report with all the details of how adding Bank on Yourself to your financial plan can help you take back control of your money. Just go to bankonyourself.com/bill. That's bankonyourself.com/bill. This information is for educational purposes only and is not a solicitation for the purchase of any financial product. All guarantees are based on the claims paying ability of the insurer.
1: What is the state of history education in America? What is the state of civics education in America? What are our students learning Well, one place to look is the National Assessment of Educational Progress, NAEP. That's called the nation's report card. The assessment given to a group of students, large number of students, uh, every uh, year or so, uh, depending on the subject, most often in math and reading, but in uh, eight other subjects as well. To make a long story short, uh, one of the subjects in which our students perform the worst is American history. Of the ten tests given by NAEP, American students tend to score the worst or near the worst in American history each time they take it. That's regrettable for a lot of reasons. One, it's a it's a subject worth studying, but there are deeper reasons. This is the country which our students will inherit, country in which they will vote, which they will pay taxes, in which they will be involved. We're not involved in civic affairs, and this is the country which they may even be called upon to defend someday. So they should know about it, and they should be able to form a judgment as to whether it is a country worth defending, worth paying taxes to, or worth voting for president in an election. Well, I think we need to restore the teaching of American history in a way that our students will respond and respond positively. The state today is not very good. There are a lot of tendentious books out there, a lot of tendentious materials. Uh, uh, Probably the most famous is Howard Zinn's A People's History of the American Republic. Uh, It's a very left-wing book. Uh, There are right-wing books as well. Uh, But this is the biggest seller uh, in American high schools. Uh, I know Professor Zinn. He and I were colleagues at Boston University. And in fact, uh, since uh, I was a fairly well-known conservative, a lot of people suggested that uh, students take his course at Boston University and my course. I decided that was a great idea and uh, urged students who were taking my course to take his course as well so they could hear both sides of the story. What's the point of both sides of the story? The point of both sides of the story or all sides of the story or all relevant sides of the story is to tell the truth. And that's what we want to do in regard to American history. You know, our students remain alien to themselves, in a country in which their past is denied. Their past is their birthright. Their American heritage is their birthright. And as it has been said many times, if you are born in the United States, you've won the lottery. Much luckier to be born here than in Haiti or China uh, or Russia uh, or almost any other country. Yeah, you win the lottery. People want to come to America. They want to come in droves. When I was secretary of education, I went around the country and taught in schools. And I would visit schools and just ask to teach a history class, U.S. history or civics class. And when I did, I talked about the Gates, the Gates test. And I talked about the Gates and what I call the Gates test. And the Gates test is this. One test of a country is once they raise their Gates, real or imaginary, which way do people run? Do they run in or do they run out? And when they lower the Gates, do people want to get out or do people want to get in? Well, in America, whenever we raise the gates, people want to come in. In fact, as anybody looking at the border situation now to our South knows, people will come in even if there are gates, even if there are restrictions. Why? Why do they want to come? Because they've heard the word that this is the place where freedom exists. Uh, this is the place where dreams come true. This is the place where despite many errors and sins in the past, your dream, the dream of your students, can come to fruition. Now, let me talk about the real American history. The point of teaching the real American history is to teach the truth. The truth about what happened. What happened at the founding? What happened when we had slavery? What happened with Jim Crow? What happened at the Revolution? What happened at the Constitutional Convention? What happened in World War I, World War II? Tell the truth about these things. A country big enough to be loved and big enough to ask for your support is big enough and ought to be strong enough to have the truth told about it. And I believe that if you tell the whole truth, the whole story about America, our students will respond and they will respond positively. They will understand the stains, they will understand the errors, the sins, but they will also see the positive achievements. There is no country in the world like America. It is the most generous country in the world. More American aid has gone to more countries than any combination of countries, other countries in the world. If you are living in some horrible place, some immiserated country, with some dictator's boot on your neck, and you see soldiers coming over the horizon, and they're carrying a flag, you hope and pray it's the American flag. Despite our problems, despite many things we've done, about which we are embarrassed, and rightly so, we are proud to be Americans. Remember, the American experiment in its various Instruments like the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, are the standard bearers for the world. The American Constitution is the most imitated political document in the world. Let me say a few more words about the current state of things. American colleges and universities do not require, for the very large part, for the most part, almost all colleges and universities, do not require a course in U.S. history in order to be able to graduate. Indeed, my research suggests that if you are a history major at many colleges and universities in America, a course in American history is not required. That seems to me quite extraordinary. At the high school level and the middle school level and the elementary level, it's a hodgepodge. It's frankly very hard to describe what happens. I remember when I visited France uh, and talked to the education minister there, he looked at his watch and he said in French, Ah, it's 10 o'clock. They are all reading their scene now. It is, if it is 10 o'clock in America, Mr. Bennett, when I was secretary, said, what are the students doing? I said, God knows. We don't know. First of all, we have a federalist system. So the states do things differently and districts do things differently. We don't know. And when it comes to the teaching of American history or civics, it's a real hodgepodge. Some of it is very good. Some of it is thoughtful, truthful, honest, rigorous. Asking students to read carefully and teachers to prepare carefully and to be sure to be up to speed on the various issues that come up in this great story that is the story of America. In other places, people think that civics in American history is teaching young people how to organize, how to go out and support a candidate or organize a strike or a march or a demonstration. That's not history. That's not the teaching of history. That's the teaching of something else. And it may be laudable at times, but it's not what our students need. Because what our students need is that knowledge base. And again, that knowledge base has to be based in the truth. We teach our history so that we'll learn the truth. We teach our history so students will have knowledge. We also teach American history so our students will have a thoughtful patriotism. A thoughtful patriotism is a reflective patriotism means they love their country despite its sins and errors, but also because of its achievements and its promise. The title of my three-volume book is America, the Last Best Hope. That, of course, comes from Abraham Lincoln, his addressed to Congress in 1863, where he said, we shall nobly save or meanly lose this last best hope of Earth. This said during the Civil War, in the very middle of the Civil War. As we consider what it is we want to learn about America, from time to time, I think it would be a good idea to look at this country through the eyes of people in other countries. And that, to me, calls to mind a great story that Ronald Reagan, the president whom I served, used to like to tell. He talks about a Navy ship over uh, in the East China Sea, uh, and it was there on patrol, uh, on, on lookout, on watch, when it uh, observed a very small craft in the water approaching it. And there was a person yelling uh, at, uh, at the naval uh, uh, officers on board. Uh, this one particular Navy lieutenant couldn't quite make it out, but he saw that there weren't weapons. It didn't seem to be a hostile thing. So he said, let's, let's go closer. So they put a boat over the side, small boat, to go and see what was going on in this makeshift craft. Well, it really was a makeshift craft. It was kind of a raft with a couple of people on board. And the people on board were Cambodians. And they were calling out to the naval officers for help, for rescue. How did they call them? Well, as they got closer, the Navy lieutenant heard the man saying, Help us. Help us, freedom man. Freedom man. Please help us. The sight of a U.S. naval officer suggested in the mind of this Cambodian refugee the words, freedom man. And indeed, that is how most of the world perceives us. Now, I understand all the criticisms that have been made about the United States, both in history books, tendentious books, books that are, you know, ideological, one direction or another. I understand all those errors. I understand all those mistakes. I understand all the criticisms now, things that we can be doing better. But in the long story of inhumanity and misery that is human history, human history, the American achievement is high, and it is unique. When I was confirmed before the Senate, the person who introduced me was Democrat Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan. Some of you may remember him. Many of you are too young to remember him. He was a great senator. George Will said he was what the founders had in mind when they thought about a senator. He wrote once, and I've quoted him several times, about America that it is indeed a country worth praising, protecting, and preserving. When he said that, someone said, what about the sins? What about the errors? He said, am I embarrassed to speak for a less than perfect democracy? No, he said, I am not. Have we done some terrible things? Yes, we have. Where did our people find out about them? They found out about them in the newspapers and on television. Another mark, I think, of greatness and of achievement. Don't be cynical. Don't be sarcastic. Don't be dismissive. Be thoughtful about this history. I believe that the single most important thing that we can do to preserve this country is to tell our story well and tell our story truthfully. I was a Democrat for 25 years, but a Republican for the last 30. But again, I try to call them as I see them and I try to call them the way they are. And I think this is particularly important when it comes to the teaching of American history. And civics. Now in secondary education, middle school education, we know that in most states around the country is an eighth grade requirement in American history. And then, and again, another one, another requirement in 11th grade. The problem is the way we have been teaching that course in American history. For the most part, the errors have been on one side. The errors have been on the left We have tended to see a tendentiousness uh, brought about by uh, the notion that America is a totally corrupt country, imperialistic, racist, and so on. So there may be an ideological threat from the left that is dominant right now, uh, the woke culture and so on, and its impositions. Of course, in reaction to this, we could see uh, an attempt to uh, impose a, a view from the right, that is uh, equally uh, one-sided, that is, that eliminates all the stains, uh, all the impurities from American history, uh, and says that we were glorious uh, overall, all the time, uh, and in every way. Now, in the totality of facts, as the world goes, uh, there is no nation, I think, that has a better record. There is no nation that is more generous. There is no nation... Uh, that has fought to defend freedom more than the United States. But there also are these problems, these difficulties. Uh, we can't have American history being uh, the worst subject of our children, and we can't have it being a great subject for our children if they only learn one side. Now, uh, I am a celebrant of America. Uh, I'm uh, always one to celebrate the 4th of July. But again, I hope that I can... Uh, present myself as an honest person as well uh, who tries to deal with the facts and present the facts the way they are. In teaching American history uh, and in the writing of my books, I have found that biography is a very useful uh, way to do it. That is, look at American history through the eyes of certain individuals. Let me give some examples. Uh, James Madison for the 18th century. Uh, I think Madison was uh, an extraordinary figure, undervalued, uh, Jefferson is mighty and large in the minds of most people at the 18th century, uh, where Madison is small. Now, admittedly, Madison was small. He was a small and frail man, but his influence was great. He's indeed the father of the Constitution. Uh, and uh, his presence uh, at the Constitutional Convention uh, was, uh, uh, was chronic. He took uh, the notes, uh, that which uh, uh, has, have led more than anything else to the drafting of the Constitution. His objections, his inquiries, his comments uh, probably were uh, more influential than anyone else's. Uh, It's been said that it is by the emanations of his mind, Madison's, that we are able to call ourselves fellow citizens. That's one example. I know I like to use biography because it's it's personal, uh, obviously, and students can connect with, with a person, an individual. You can also do James Madison and Dolly Madison is very colorful, very um, interesting wife. She's the one of course, who removed the uh, the painting uh, in uh, the white house uh, before the British soldiers could get to it in 1812 famous story. Uh, another person for the 18th century would be George Washington, a remarkable figure, uh, the father of our country rightly called. Uh, and there are so many wonderful stories about uh, Washington. Uh, one of my favorites is that toward the end of the Revolutionary War, uh, when his soldiers were very restive and they wanted to march on Philadelphia and the, uh, and the, uh, the nascent uh, Congress, uh, Washington called them off. Uh, he gave a speech, and uh, in the beginning of the speech, he reached into his pocket and pulled out his glasses, his spectacles. Um, people grew quiet. The soldiers grew quiet. They didn't know that their general wore spectacles. He said, uh, something of the effect of, gentlemen, I see that you're surprised to see that I am wearing uh, spectacles, but I have grown almost blind as I have grown weary uh, in the service of my country. Uh, a remarkable moment and a remarkable man. It was King George who said of uh, George Washington, King George in England, uh, he marveled at the fact that Washington willingly uh, gave up the leadership of the country. Uh, without uh, being forced out uh, or without dying, he just left and said he it was time. Indeed, he was ready to go after one term, but um, was obviously pressed into longer service. Um, for the 19th century, um, Lincoln, I think, is the dominant figure. Uh, he is the um, he is the uh, in some ways the, the greatest figure in American history. Uh, again, uh, he his words during the Civil War about America and what it stood for, uh, the way he uh, conducted himself during the Civil War, his background, uh, his travails as a boy, uh, his limited reading. They said that Lincoln read only two books, uh, the Bible and Shakespeare, Uh, his leadership uh, at a crucial time, and his words, obviously, the Gettysburg Address uh, and the words that we have here on on the Lincoln Memorial, other figures, of course, could be taken up, the underestimated uh, Ulysses S. Grant. Uh, we could talk about Frederick Douglass, uh, his relationship with Lincoln, uh, and that is, uh, that is a wonderful story uh, as well. To get into the 20th century, uh, there are a number of figures we could talk about. Uh, some people have suggested Ronald Reagan, uh, I'd be for that. Others have suggested JFK. Uh, other people talk about FDR. Uh, and his uh, unprecedented uh, succession of terms as president uh, and his leadership uh, during uh, World War II. But I would recommend the the figure of Martin Luther King, uh, partly because of uh, reasons of continuity. Uh, If you look at Madison, Washington, and then Lincoln, uh, and then King, you will see a continuity uh, of the invocation of the most important American documents and symbols the Declaration of Independence, uh, the Constitution. King says uh, that it is those documents to which he um, returns and which he references in his speeches. Uh, I cannot read the Constitution, I cannot read the Declaration uh, without uh, wondering why why we are not free. Uh, I read those documents and I believe that the promise uh, is not being kept. There's a consistency Um uh, among the messages of those uh, those men that I think uh, is critical. One of the reasons I wrote this book and other books about America is it's time to re-engage the imagination uh, of American students about their country, to, to let them enjoy uh, the fact that they are Americans, to relish that fact of how lucky they were born in America. They won the lottery compared to uh, uh, the rest of the world. It's also to give them an appreciation of that story, uh, which they do not have. Again, I reference those low scores in American history, uh, and to tell the truth about, uh, this country because the truth matters and what they think about this country, uh, matters. And if they are wrong and off base, that can get them into a bad situation, uh, both in terms of over celebrating or under celebrating. Uh, we don't want to do uh, either one. Uh, I think this is, uh, this subject is uh, not only the, uh, the the most neglected in terms of our students' knowledge, but indeed one of the three most important subjects uh, our children learn. Reading is critical, of course, and you got to read by the third grade. Numeracy, mathematics—you've got to know how to count, read, write, count, think. But then to know the story, and to know the story, and uh, not uh, just uh, just words uh, only. But uh, warts and all, uh, warts uh, and those wonderful shining moments uh, of this uh, city on the hill that we call America. Uh, the story of a great people who err, who make mistakes, who commit sins, but who do their best to overcome them as well. It's the great story of the greatest country the world has ever seen, the United States of America. <laughs>
0: All right. I hope you enjoyed that long talk from Bill, American History, American Civic. So glad we got a chance to take that audio that's not been used for this project and play it back here on the podcast. Feel free to share your uh, thoughts. Bill Bennett podcast at gmail.com. I know he would love to hear um, your thoughts on that. All right. So coming up on the next episode of the Bill Bennett podcast, we have Byron York joining us. Uh, now, Bill and Byron already recorded that segment. We're going to release it in the next couple of days. However, uh, we can't have Byron on the show without talking about golf. And so the Open Championship uh, happening uh, this weekend, uh, well, you know, obviously started Thursday, Friday. And so depending on when you're listening to this uh, episode, you know, a couple rounds have already passed. And so Byron uh, talked a little bit of uh, Open Championship, talked some live golf uh, with Bill. And so, you know, it's- Instead of waiting until Byron's episode airs, which is going to be after the Open Championship, I just pulled that audio and I uh, want to close the show with something fun. Take a listen.
2: I want to commend you for not bringing up uh, the British Open. Did Claude tell you not to bring up the British Open or something? No. What happened? It hasn't <laughs> happened <laughs> yet. Oh, I'm sorry. My goodness, what happened? What What about the uh, – What? oh, well, I know what I want to ask you about, golf. What about
1: these uh, – Arab oil kingdoms and uh, luring the pro golfers away. What about that? What do you think about that?
2: Yes, well, that's that's called the Live Golf story. The Live um, Golf story. Okay. Well, you know, I have to tell you, uh, I have. Don't
1: I have, patronize me, Byron.
2: I have that's opinions. A, that's have called opinions the Live about. Golf story. Okay. <laughs> I have opinions about that. Well, do, do you know why it's called Live Golf? By the way, no, it's L I V capital L I V and
1: okay. then golf. No. Okay, I know a, what that is in Roman numerals. If that's there you go.
2: Day. It's a 54-hole tournament. There, You know, okay. most tournaments, all tournaments on the PGA Tour and the major championships are all 72 holes. And Live Golf's one of their innovations is that they only do three days, three rounds at 54 holes. And so that's where they got the L I V thing, which is and
1: people say live
2: anyway. Um, I I was kind of irritated at all the moralism that the PGA Tour uh, was throwing yeah, yeah. because it, because it is Saudi money. Live Golf is is funded with Saudi money. There's there's Saudi money in other. I think the 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 women's tour has a, a either a Ramco Championship or an Ramco Tour or something. There's Saudi money in women's golf too. Um, and uh, they have to wear they have to
1: wear a headdress when they're playing uh,
2: the answer is no mm-hmm. um, they they <laughs> They wear a hat with their sponsor's name on it, just like everybody else. Oh okay, baseball they, cat. they, they sell the space on their hat just like everybody else so and you, you know obviously Saudi Arabia Joe Biden is talking about how Saudi Arabia is a, a key strategic partner of the United States. Uh, he's going to visit Saudi Arabia. He's going to, I mean, how many uh, military mm-hmm. bases does the United States have in Saudi Arabia, which have mm-hmm. proven very critical in yeah. previous conflicts? Yeah. Um, I mean, and, and, and Joe Biden's begging for them to please begging. pump more oil. Begging. Um, and the PGA Tour is tearing itself apart over the morality of golfers signing up uh, for a tour that's funded with Saudi money. Uh, so the 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 um, the moral posturing kind of irritated me about it. I don't know whether this tour is going to be a success. I mean, I just I just don't know if it's interesting enough golf, um, and whether their innovations are you know are, are going to be popular with people. They don't have a TV contract right now, but I just I don't find- understand
1: if, if you play if you play in the LIV tournament. Does yep. That mean you can't play in the PGA or the Yes,
2: yes. Masters? The PGA Tour the PGA tour well, that's different. I'll tell you about that in a second. The PGA Tour suspended everybody who has joined and played in a live golf event indefinitely, possibly for life. Why? It, because, because the PGA tour sees an enormous economic threat to their dominance and prosperity in the world of golf. That's, uh-huh. that's what it is. When you look behind moral arguments, you will amazingly enough find uh-huh. economic arguments. Yeah. So the, the Live Golf Challenge is just that. It's a, a challenge to the hegemony of the PGA Tour. So um, uh, the, the, the major championships, this is all in the, in the weed stuff, but the major championships are all run by separate organizations from the PGA Tour. So they can do what they want, and this year at least, the U.S. Open and the British Open um, uh, allowed live golf players who qualified to uh, to take part in those tournaments. My feeling is they just could not, with the name "Open" in their championship, they couldn't, you know, shut the door yeah. to these guys. So you. anyway, uh, so they're playing. The problem is. <laughs> All of the players who've gone over to live golf, the big stars, have been playing terribly. Uh, who, so, who are they? Is Phil Mickelson? Is he? Yeah, new? Mickelson is the biggest one. He was he was reported to have gotten two hundred million dollars uh, oh to my go, Lord, which may or may not pay his gambling debts. Uh, you know, he was reported to have lost in the forty million dollar range in one year. I think it was twenty thirteen, maybe twenty fourteen. Um, and he is now kind of fessed up that he's got a gambling problem, and he's working on it. Uh, wow! But um, just 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 blowing away just unbelievable amounts of money. But anyway, uh, Mickelson and the the surprise one was Dustin Johnson, who I think is in. He's probably thirty seven, thirty eight years old. Still, clearly could win a few more major championships. He's one of the
1: top ten, isn't he?
2: Yeah, he's he's a very high ranked golfer. Um, and Patrick Reed, who's a Master Championship mm-hmm. champion, also went there. A lot of the players were like Sergio Garcia, Lee Westwood, older, uh, older. They were they were Europe uh, European players who were not gonna. You know, Sergio Garcia was a miracle. He won the Masters uh and westwood's never going to win a major Poulter is never going to win a major and these guys got huge amounts of money to go play so their decisions were quite understandable Yeah. Um, but the, the thing that would really blow the minds of i think golf would actually have a complete nervous breakdown is that if a live golf player of any sort won the british open won a major champion that that would be that would change the world probably and they're in the British Open, is that right? They're allowed yeah, in? Yeah, the, uh, the ones who qual- qualified. Uh, Mickelson's a former champion. Louis Oosthuizen is a former champion. And uh, I think a number of them had qualified, um, totally apart from their time with yeah. the golf. So, yeah, right. they're there.
1: <clears throat> I'm glad you explained live golf. Uh, it reminds me when I was secretary of education 100 years ago, oh, I had yeah. a meeting and I asked a colleague uh, a junior colleague to uh, give people the logistics for the for the luncheon, and I remember it was reported to me that he said in the hotel, after this uh, session is over, go to the Louis XIV room. <laughs> you got it right.
2: Yeah, yeah,
1: exactly. Louis the Fourteenth, XIV, the Louis XIV room.
2: Well, this. Is- <laughs> This is exactly the same thing, yeah, except yeah. we it it spells live golf because they thought doing I guess they thought seventy two hole tournaments were really boring, so that fifty four hole tournaments would be better. I don't I don't know yeah. why they think that's such a great innovation, but it's basically it is golf for people with a shorter attention span that is younger people um, than than All the right. traditional golf fan.
1: All right. Well, last word, you kind of straightened me out little cold water splash in my face about the british open hasn't occurred yet is there a reason that we should anticipate it with well with interest? it hasn't
2: occurred yet because it's scheduled to start on Thursday
1: <laughs> this Thursday
2: yeah this Thursday but is there, reason, is there a reason
1: well, is there a reason to anticipate it with some
2: it's kind of a big than one. normal degree of interest it's kind of a big one it's the 150th british open it's by yeah, far good. the oldest championship in golf Uh, It's being played at St. Andrews, the home of golf. They've made a big deal of the history of it. They had uh, all the past champions come um, and play a little exhibition, uh, I think, on Monday. So they had, like, um, obviously still active people like Tiger were there, but Lee Trevino was there and Ernie Els and all of the the people who've won the major championships except – for Greg Norman, who won the British Open twice and uh was disinvited from any of the uh activities at the British Open. So that was that was a pretty clear sign from the Gulf. Well, how, how old is Greg Norman? Norman is I think sixty-seven, but it it, it didn't matter. I mean Lee Trevino's 80. Um this was they were just he, He's not playing in the tournament. They had a little. They had a little. Lee Trevino is how old? He must be about eighty, I think. Well, back
1: to where we started. Trevino and Greg Norman. He's, I think, what seventy. Norman,
2: I I think Norman is about sixty-seven, and this is not an age thing. They were the okay. He was not. He actually wanted to play in the British Open itself, but they said no to that. But that was understandable because he's over the age limit. But. but in terms of this these ceremonial events they were having to celebrate 150 years of the british open where they invited all the living champions back to take part in events and they specifically disinvited him greg you're not coming um, Wow. so that was that was a big statement from what's part why because yeah. of the because of the challenge that live golf presents to the current no. establishment and this this was something called the RNA, which is the royal and ancient, which is the, the one of golf's two okay. major governing bodies.
1: All right. Well, then let me round it up a different way. If, if you're not allowed to play in the live uh, or you're not allowed to play in the British Open because of the live uh, and you're 67 or 80, consider running for president of the United
2: States. There you go. Well, the British Open, I had thought they had an. What had happened is there were there were tournaments like the Masters that allowed former champions to come and play in the tournament as long as they like. And um, there was this kind of understanding that you wouldn't abuse the privilege, you know, because the Masters, they made the course longer over the years. People get older. You know, a champion, a master champion, doesn't want to go out and shoot 85 four days in a row. No, well, he can't do it four days in a row, two days in a row. So there was this idea that they would... Um, that golfers would kind of self-police. And then there was a year when Billy Casper, who was a, a big golf star in the sixties, I think he won three major championships, including the masters, you know, he's like in his eighties and he goes and he shoots, I don't know, a hundred or something like that. And that was just too much. Um, so I think the masters put in a 65 year old rule where former champions cannot play in the tournament after that. And the British open has such a rule. Um, and that's you know th- that had been an important part of the tradition. You know, Arnold Palmer played till he was well in his seventies, but um, uh, they had to get rid of that. And so they they have golf limits. And believe me, Joe Biden would be too old to play in the yeah. Masters or the or the Open. Limits of sixty five, but add fifteen years to that, and you can run for president.
1: Apparently,
0: there you go. All right. That does it for this episode of the Bill Bennett podcast. Of course, share your thoughts with Bill about anything on your mind. Bill Bennett podcast at gmail.com. All right. We'll catch up next week when we play the full interview with Byron York.